Welcome to Hidden Layers, where we explore the people and the tech behind artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Ron Green, and I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Siog Jain to talk about self-supervised learning, multimodal models, and the idea that in some ways, data is becoming more important to the advancement of AI than model architectures. Siog Jain is a research scientist at Facebook AI Research, working in the area of multimodal learning. Previously, he worked at Path AI, focusing on AI in precision medicine and clinical diagnostics. He also spent time as a consultant at Kung Fu AI, working on geospatial data. He holds a PhD from the University of Texas at Austin with expertise in image and video segmentation. Welcome, Siog. Thanks. Let's talk a little bit about how you got interested in artificial intelligence. How did you get involved in the field in the first place? Yeah, it's a bit of a funny story. So as basically like I think in second year of my undergrad, I started just sort of wondering, um, essentially like we would use Google so often to do a text-based search. And it was just like an organic thought about why I can't search through images. It's like, you know, sounds silly to me like now, but back then I thought I have basically cracked like the next big idea that's going to you know right. uh, you know make such a big impact and then you know just started digging into you know how do you start to work on this uh, problem and then you know it was obvious to me that people have been working on this specific problem for at least like 50 years and you know it's such an incredibly hard problem you know to work at and uh, I then got in touch with some professors uh, who are working in this area and then just started doing a, some small research projects um, around that time. And my first foray was to sort of um, actually like work on image search kind of a problem where, you know, you have some sort of like query images and you want to retrieve like similar images. This was done at very small scale and this is 2006. And so, okay. yeah, a lot of the dark time, ages. Yeah. yeah. And then just interest, you know, kept on growing. I did internships in related field and then came to grad school uh, with sort of like uh, a very clear view that I want to pursue like a doctoral program in this area. Um, and then, yeah, it just went from there. Uh, what what um, I'm kind of curious in, in 2006, what kind of techniques were you using to do image search back then? Yeah, it's amazing. Like it was definitely only handcrafted features. So you would basically like look at the raw pixel values and quantize them in some manner. Uh, so you would try to sort of extract some sort of, you know, color, rep, rep, like features representing colors, uh, representing textures. Mm. There were like, you know, some old techniques which are even like predating something like a hog or a sift, which were before deep learning. Like right. so, there are like, you know, some uh, features which are even older than those features and I was basically like you know using those kind of features and using some very simple sort of classification or indexing sort of techniques which would uh, you know work with those features to build that kind of a system. Well I'm kind of curious what what did you think the first time you heard about deep learning being applied neural networks being applied to computer vision? Yeah, it's so it's interesting because when I came to grad school, like in my first uh, semester, I took a neural networks course and this is pre deep learning sort of era revolution. And I kept hearing like it's something that, you know, no people no longer use. And so, you, right. you know, like it's something only very small set of people are interested in. It doesn't work in practice. And so even our group was very much focused on non deep learning kind of techniques and 
as basically like AlexNet, which is the first sort of major breakthrough paper that showed how impactful deep learning can be. Uh, that came in 2014, which was right at the midpoint of my PhD. And so I always think of my PhD as pre-AlexNet and post-AlexNet. Right, right. And, you know, because pre-AlexNet, we were, no one was l even looking at deep learning in, in sort of any sense. And so obviously when AlexNet just gave such a highly big impact result, then, you know, we were all very keen, uh, but also skeptical at the same time because oftentimes you know things there's flashes and then things go away so we continue to ignore it <laughs> for like a, a year or so but then it became clear that you know this is just so much more powerful than how we were doing things because pre-deep learning the way vision was done was you would just separate feature design from the learning part of it and so you would come up with some ways of doing hand designing of features there's some established techniques you would sort of come up with newer techniques and that was what the vision people were doing that was their main thing come up with new features and then just use some standard classifier like an svm or something on top of that but this uh, sort of approach like a deep learning based approach like really demonstrated that feature learning itself should be data driven and not hand designed and that is just a paradigm shift in terms of scaling this kind of technique to all sorts of problems because you cannot hand design features for every domain that comes it, it almost feels like cheating when you when you when you move from saying i spent all my time doing you know feature engineering feature selection yeah and now i just let the model figure that out it's almost like cheating <laughs> yeah but at the same time it just feels natural right like we uh, even from a human perception perspective we don't sort of uh you know have a we probably have a mechanism of feature learning but it's directly going from data to features it's not really like a separate process and so right. in a way my first sort of big takeaway was that uh, from from the impact perspective is that this approach of feature learning is going to be you know the most critical thing in the next few years right so Pr pretty much everybody i've talked to who was working in computer vision at that time you know, had that moment where they, they, they saw what AlexNet could do and they were a little suspicious. It took a little bit of time, maybe a year or two to really get on board. And then now nobody's looked back. It's, it's pretty much all deep learning since then. Yeah, totally. Like, um, and, you know, I published like a couple of papers uh, on deep learning based techniques for video segmentation towards the end of my PhD. And I was just amazed at how good those models were. So you could sense that something fundamentally has changed um, and, you know, it has continued since then. Yeah, unabated. Yeah. So during your time at Path AI, you were working in a, a really specialized domain, uh, pathology, and that's a, a particularly difficult domain in computer vision. Um, the data is uh, scarce. It, it's complex. Uh, labels are hard to come by. And... Um, was that your first exposure to leveraging self-supervised learning in computer vision, or had you done that earlier? No, that was the first experience. Um, and I think, um, like, even in that sort of, most of that phase, we were still focusing on supervised learning to a certain degree. Okay. But to pull off super supervised learning in that kind of a domain came up with lots of challenges. So, for example... Um, when you're training supervised models, you're training very specific models, you know, designed for doing something very specific, like detecting a certain type of a cancer in a certain limited data set. Uh, so it's 
very difficult to generalize. You have to kind of train a custom model, like for each different problem right. that you're working on. And on top of that, you know, you can leverage some notion of pre-training, but pretty much you're collecting all the data that you need for solving that specific problem again and again. And when you work in a specialized domain like pathology, getting access to unlabeled data is hard, but getting access to labeled data is even harder because maybe you can get unlabeled data from your customers or from some other sources, um, but there's only a handful of experts who can actually provide you the annotations that you need for doing self-supervised learning. Oh, sorry, supervised learning. Um, right. Yeah. Because, you know, the kind of problems or the kind of models that you're trying to build in those kind of domains, it's not equivalent to our everyday vision where any sort of person can kind of look at the data and tell whether this is this object or that object or this activity or that activity. There you really require like an expert knowledge to be able to tell you this patch is this type of cancer or that type of cancer or this subtype or that subtype. And that just then makes scaling this kind of a model development process very hard. And, and you're also dealing with, if I understand correctly, um, you know, differences in scale. You might you might have to pay attention to things that are uh, that are maybe uh, very spread out or very very isolated and very small and very fine in nature. Is that is that correct about pathology as well? Yeah, I think totally. I think if we look at the workflow of a pathologist, like let's say someone's using digital pathology, they would be zooming into various areas, right. making some analysis, looking at micro patterns, and then zooming out looking at like macro patterns and like making sort of decisions based on that. This is definitely a lot more of the modeling question as well, not just the data question. Like maybe you can sort of have data at multi-scale, but then how do you build models that can deal with inputs that come at multiple scales and right. then fuse information or like fuse predictions that you do at multiple scales. So those are like some fascinating challenges which come from that specialized domain. Yeah. Were you using um, any self-supervised learning at that point in your career? So um, we started experimenting with that towards the end, okay. and that was pretty much to kind of, uh, in a way, basically to solve this problem of the child, like, you know, this needing to label data from scratch whenever you're trying to sort of uh, build any sort of supervised model. Um, it's expensive, right? Your experts are annotating this data. Uh, it's expensive both in terms of cost as well as like it's hard to scale because there's a small number of annotators who can do it. So it's not like you can get these images, like millions of them annotated quickly. So what self-supervised learning uh, provides you is this ability to sort of um, like do this feature representation that we talked about previously by just using the property of the data itself or the problem. And so in a way, to give you a simple example, um, not specific to pathology, but when self-supervised learning first came into sort of being, people were doing very simple things. Like for example, they would, you know, um, like rotate an image 
and then train a model to predict whether the image is rotated or not mm-hmm. or do colorization where they would convert the image into black and white and then f- force the network to colorize it now you don't need a human annotator to do this kind of thing you can just generate infinite amount of data by this sort of method right and the hope is that if you just do supervised learning with this kind of self supervision the features that you end up learning will still be generally useful and so the field has started from there and evolved into all sorts of advanced techniques for doing self supervision like some of the most popular ones are doing sort of masked uh, training where you would mask certain parts of the image and force the network to predict other parts like the the the, the masked parts of the image and it has been shown that if you do like really large scale training with this kind of an approach the features that you end up learning are very universally and generally useful and so we we started to explore some of these directions with the hope that let's say we work on a new problem uh we get the unlabeled data and then we can pretrain uh, our model with this kind of an approach and so even without getting any human labels it knows a lot about that specific problem or domain and then we rely on a small amount of handful of human labels uh to then sort of in a way just take those features and convert them into sort of meaningful classes like okay right. because it already knows the visual patterns in a, in some sense what you're only doing is kind of converting those embeddings or visual patterns into names um in some sense yeah. right right and and to me this is i i think one of the most fascinating things that's happened in the last decade within deep learning the idea that you can take a model and train it to perform some task um some self-supervised tasks like you mentioned uh predicting rotation angle or removing noise or something like that um and for that model to become good at that task it has to learn things that turn out to be really helpful for other completely unrelated tasks so for example uh face detection or identifying objects in an image ha- that has nothing to do with noise removal but mm-hmm. it it turns out to understand uh the world there are some sort of commonalities that and from a feature perspective that the models have to learn right yeah yeah totally right. yeah. so um i'd love to segue a little bit and 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 have you talked a little bit more about um the importance of data you know i i think that this is somewhat pr- provocative at this stage maybe maybe increasingly um less as time goes by but there's so much focus right now on model architectures transformers and and other competitors um but within specialized domains like pathology um the data can be the limiting factor right you you might know exactly how you want to approach it from a model architecture but you're limited by data um can you talk a little bit about how you are approaching that in other domains like maybe multimodal domains to uh address this expensive hand labeling of data problem so um Yeah so there's a couple of aspects to it like um so I think models are extremely important um and we thought you know even when convolutional neural networks were there they were so good and now we have a transformer architecture that's even better and you know I don't doubt that maybe in like 5 years or so we will have another variant of it that will probably be even better but when you combine that with the power of open source you know uh, it's amazing to see that so much of this is being driven through open research where these architectures this sort of deep technical knowledge about how to build these architectures train these models is widely available 
in public you know open source but still that you know you see that it's not like it's just so easy to go into any domain and build a successful product out of it and right. the limiting factor just comes down to data there are certain domains for which you just don't have the data to begin with um, and then certain domains where you have you know data but it's either you know uh, like it's not accessible like so no one is open sourcing data like the way people are open sourcing you know like models right, right. and so you can have the models but the people the only the people who have the data can actually build like great like products out of it it's really that's a really good way of putting it we're talking about how important the data is um proof of that is the fact that companies may spend millions of dollars yeah. on a model designing it training it and then open source the weights, yeah. but not the data, because <laughs> yes. it's it's a real it's a real differentiator. Yes, uh, totally. And I mean, there's sort of like a huge aspect of that is the differentiator. Um, and then other aspect is you know the whole sort of notion about privacy and you know those kind of factors that it's just not possible, um, like to you know just put that data out there. But I think still this sort of um, contribution towards uh, having access to this data, I think, plays the most important role right now. If anyone needs to build a startup in this space, they will not. They should not worry about the models right now, <laughs> and they should worry about the uh, data. That's oh, that's sense. fantastic advice. Yeah, that's terrific. In many ways, the advances within AI were really only made globally uh, public with the um, release of ChatGPT, and it's really captured everybody's imagination. And it was, uh, for the better part of the first year, pretty much all text input and output. They've since added images, so now we have multimodal modeling. Um, I know that's an area that you're working in. What what are you excited about, and what are, what are some of the challenges in the world of multimodal modeling right now? Yeah, so it's very fascinating when you combine like multiple modalities together, because Oftentimes, like, you know, when I think about text, it's basically like a, you know, a human created construct, like in some sense of describing the world when you think about language. And in some senses, it has like limited, like in some sense, it, it, it opens up a lot of applications, but it's also limited in some ways, like you cannot... When, when people say a picture is worth a thousand words, like, you know, it sounds cheesy, but there is like a lot of truth to it. There's a lot of truth well. to that. Yeah, because if you look at a picture or if you look at a 10 second clip, there's just like so much that you can describe about that image that you just see in this sort of, you know, um, like high fidelity signal in a way. And so I think we are not truly multimodal like yet because right now the approach that I see um generally academia or like industry taking is to align signals coming out of images or videos to what we know about text because text gives you this amazing ability of generalizing because right. we have so much text about everything that exists in the world and so if you can take what is there in an image its representation and just align it to the text then in a way when if you get that alignment right, uh, then it starts to generalize to unseen domains because it's pivoting on going from the alignment between the image and the text um, right. and then generalizing from there. But 
my personal sort of intuition is that's limiting um, in in some sense because you're kind of just aligning the two modalities you're not necessarily leveraging the richness of this other modality that exists like because it's not again comes down to how do you generate like large scale sort of descriptions about that image that is independent of web text and stuff right like it's it's pr probably pretty expensive you know to do that kind of a thing but there is like a lot more information that exists in this image so i think it's still fascinating to see how fast or like how far you you're able to go by this sort of an alignment step but i think there is like lot more to be gained by leveraging this like rich content that exists in image and video like in a sort of more robust manner so when you're training a multimodal model you're dealing with text and images and and audio um and and video sometimes what about the challenges of keeping it grounded and and how and dealing with hallucinations as you move between those modalities yeah and i think uh, this sort of challenge fundamentally comes from the approaches that we are taking right now for multimodal learning um and just referring back to the previous sort of conversation ab about alignment when we align one modality to another to leverage the power of generalization from let's say the text modality what we end up doing is like a text based part of that multimodal model can always generate a plausible answer for whatever right. question you ask right but there is really no way of guaranteeing that that answer is actually grounded in this other modality whether you see that in that image or video or not and right now you know you're implicitly trying to sort of make the model learn um to ground the answers because when you're training the model in a multimodal fashion and it's trying to generate a plausible answer um you can design your data sets in a way which forces the network to leverage um both modalities and not just rely on the text modality and so people have come up with all sorts of you know approaches to do that especially if you like look at the lava paper you know they come up with like so many different ways of generating um these question answer pairs which you know are grounded uh, in some sense but still like at a fundamental level we are just relying on this kind of a training data um to to and then hope for the best that you know the model always you know right uses the both modalities but i think there's just a lot of work that needs to happen um i think in this case maybe on a lot more on the architecture uh, side as well or the the machine learning side of it like how do we build models that have a deeper understanding of the the world uh, the semantics that you're seeing in the visual uh, inputs and then make sure that the answer that you are generating respects that semantics and not just simply like hallucinate right well i'm i'm tempted to go into a whole another area around reinforcement learning with human feedback and things like that but um we'll save that for another time we'll we'll have <laughs> you on the show again um i meant to ask you this earlier um do you find do you find that self-supervised learning techniques are more applicable within computer vision than NLP generally are you are using them broadly or across both no i think yeah it's broadly broadly or across both like i mean like uh the whole sort of 
approach of doing like mast language pre-training exactly. with word and gpt and everything like that brought like a paradigm shift in the language right. world like i think the 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 concepts are kind of similar like in in that sense um and in in some sense like it's more broadly applied in language right now because you just have lot of well designed structured text written by humans like available on internet and then you can use that wherein in vision like we are trying to still like just operate at the level of pixels in a way like whether you're doing mast auto encoders or something like that your your representations is still guided more from low level image representations than more like a semantic sort of space that you see in text so i think it's definitely broadly applicable in in both but i think primarily like just the amount of data that exists uh when you like look at image like very large scale image data sets or video data sets i think in the long run i feel that it will have a huge impact on the vision domain as well i'm curious to know in the next 12 to 18 months is there an area within ai whether it's you know research or uh, application development that you're particularly excited about right now yeah um, i mean lots of potential sort of exciting um, avenues um, i think when i look at from an academic perspective i think uh, uh, i feel there's so much potential on videos that we haven't explored uh, l- even like current multimodal models are very heavily focused on combining text and image but when you go to videos like you get so much more information but at the same time it's extremely challenging like this like extremely large videos like how do you kind of right. like build models on and top of that managing continuity and everything yeah, yeah so i think that's a very exciting area for me like very looking forward to all the advancements that happen um from like a video learning perspective but i think simultaneously i'm very in, excited to sort of uh, see uh, what are the kind of real world products or applications uh, people successfully launch which go beyond what open ai is doing or what these like large foundation models are doing because like building a successful ai product is very hard you have to go deeper into a domain and sort of like you know just go and like build deep expertise into a domain get that right data from that domain so i think people who are working hard on that aspect where they take some of these advancements of foundation models but when they combine it with their domain expertise i think that can lead to amazing things and so i really hope in next 12 months we see some you know a couple of areas which are just completely you know transformed using um, like an ai based product and that that was a perfect perfect uh sort of closing the loop because one of the challenges as you mentioned within these specialized domains is is the uh, proprietary data the specialized data that the complex data and that's one of the challenges with building uh, AI based products right now yes. um, so I, we, I'd love to ask you a final question we always ask our guests here which is if you could uh, you know wave your magic wand and have AI help you in some part of your daily life what would you pick yeah so i think one is related to I think creating memories I feel that when I have a 3 year old daughter and she is always doing something cute and I never have my phone handy to capture that moment I wish there was you know something like um 
you know like a smart camera or something that can just automatically without me ever ever worrying about capturing those moments is continuously capturing those moments and creating like something magical for me that i can just look back you know so i don't have to be the active photographer i just i'm <laughs> part of that moment rather than trying to capture that moment and you know so that's yeah. one thing the the other thing like i'm really sort of excited about is the potential of uh, you know these foundation models like in some sense uh, how how they're going to impact in how we like learn new things or acquire new skills in a way and you can sort of think about it more from advanced skills but even something you know as simple as like you know elementary education like you know sort of like the way we learn new techniques the way i read papers or the the way i read like new things uh in i would love to have a very good ai assistant who would like mine through these gazillion papers read that, all the white like, papers give you a summary yeah i mean even if it's not a summary but it's like creates like go takes me away from this sort of um like a mundane way of just loading a pdf reading through it versus like it makes it more fun more interactive and i can sort of quiz it um, that will be super interesting that would be amazing if you if you find that please let me know <laughs> yeah. well thank you so much for uh coming on today this was fantastic i enjoyed it so much and i really appreciate your time thank you thank you for listening to hidden layers this series is hosted by Kung Fu AI, a management consulting and engineering firm focused exclusively on artificial intelligence. If you have any questions or thoughts about today's episode, or if you know someone we should feature, please visit us at kungfu.ai.